0: and I'm super excited to bring to you the very first episode of the 28.4 FM podcast, hosted by young people, for young people, and presented by the Young India Foundation. Uh, today, I'm joined by Sanskriti. Hi, Sanskriti. Hi, Rishika. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well, yes. Amazing. So... I think it's really fitting that before we started recording, I, you and I were talking about our university plans, because what we're going to be diving into with the episode today is the new national education policy, um, something that concerns all of us as young students in India, right? So the NEP 2020, everyone's talking about it. Um, It was approved by the union cabinet on the 29th of July. And what it essentially is, is this policy framework for a complete overhaul of the Indian education system. This means that it doesn't just call for reforms in the schooling aspect of education, but also higher education at universities the administrative bodies that govern education in India, and some social reforms that relate to education in the country. So it's a very grand framework. Uh, You and I both had the chance to read the policy document and it is massive. I mean, there's no way we'd be able to cover all of it in one episode because it suggests so many new reforms. But uh, I guess it was put best by our prime minister himself, right? He said that he envisions with this document Indian education is something that teaches students not just what to think but also how to think. So among many things, uh, the policy calls for reductions in dropout rates and wealth disparity in the Indian education sector, uh, a focus on interdisciplinary and holistic education as compared to the rote learning that we see today. It calls for more emphasis on research, some introduction of international players in the university sector, um, calls for reforming the MHRD, which will now become the Ministry of Education. So uh, it's a very visionary document. And uh, just like most legislation, it's invited both appraisal and criticism from across the political spectrum. It's been lauded for its vision. It's been lauded for taking such a much needed massive step towards reforming education in India. But it's also gotten its fair share of criticism because many believe that it does the opposite of what it promises, that it lacks um, any guidelines on how it will be implemented, um, which would you know prove to be a pitfall for education in the country. So there's a lot to talk about, which is why we thought best to consult someone who hasn't just worked in the field of education, but has had interactions with students, teachers, and politicians uh, when it comes to education in India. Uh, so before uh, we get into more details of our guest, who we were so privileged to have, it's very important to establish two things when it comes to understanding this policy. The first fact of the matter is that we get a new national education policy every few decades. We had one under Indira Gandhi, we had one under Rajiv Gandhi, and this one is under Narendra Modi. Is the policy influenced by the administration that makes it? Yes. But what's important to keep in mind is that this policy was drafted after a very intensive consultation process with educationists, MPs, um, volunteers, and activists across the country, right? Um, So it has inputs from many, many stakeholders. And the second thing is that more than anything, this is a framework. It's a set of guidelines. So we're not fully sure whether every reform will be mandated. It might be up to the school's discretion. It might be up to the resources available to schools and universities. So it's very much in the works. Which is why, owing to the many complexities and details of this policy, we seek to consult an expert. Um, and we are so lucky to have had the chance to interview Mr. Krishna Baskaran. Uh, Sanskriti, why don't you tell us more about our
1: guest? Yes, definitely. So Krishna has been working with the government of Tamil Nadu and has been teaching kids at grassroots with the Teach for India Foundation. And we wanted Hmm. someone with expertise on this subject, right? Uh, So we have Krishna on board with us to disseminate and deconstruct the national education policy.
0: Exactly. So uh, Krishna, thank you so much for joining us. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you do?
2: All right. Uh, So um, I graduated in um, aerospace engineering from Amrita. Um, But then my uh, calling, so to say, was in education. So I joined the Teach for India fellowship in 2016. Okay. Um, Did the two years. uh, Worked with a government-run school in Chennai. Uh, Primary school, I uh, taught grade two and three. Um, After that, there was uh, an opportunity to uh, continue working with government schools. I wanted to continue working with government schools because um, I saw the kind of uh, uh, some of the structural issues that uh, schools face. And uh, 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 so I wanted to continue working on them. Teach for India uh, uh, set up a new role uh, wherein um, I was working as the school coordinator slash assistant school leader Mm-hmm. Uh, in a government middle school again in Chennai. Uh, this was until April. Um, I now work with uh, the office of the Member of Parliament from my constituency.
0: Okay, that's fantastic. So um, in a very general sense, what are your broad opinions on this policy? Like how does it intersect with the work you do personally uh, and how does it impact uh, teachers, students, administrators like in a very large sense?
2: Um, in the sense uh, I kind of see it in um, t- I mean a few different uh, lenses. Uh, from my experience, a lot of uh, issues that at least government schools and small private school face, um, mostly government, I mean, most of our children study in uh, government schools, mm-hmm. um, are very structural in nature. Like, um, uh, for example, uh, one of the uh, proposals in the NEP is uh, setting up school complexes, right? Like, yeah. uh, there will be a head school The higher secondary school in the region will be like a a head school for the uh, school surrounding it. Uh, I don't know what kind of problem it is solving, though. Uh, Because, uh, one, I think the context of states are very, very different. Even within states, I think uh, in Chennai, uh, from my experience, we had uh, six, seven schools within a kilometer. Uh, within a kilometer, within one to two kilometers uh, radius. But uh, whereas in the, uh, I mean, in places that time here, right now, uh, there are, uh, uh, I mean, the setup is a bit different. The Chennai uh, corporations' are, are administrative setup is different, while the rest of the areas, the administrative setup is different. If there are such diverse. Uh, uh, ways uh, the education system here, at least the public education system here functions. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, uh, w- one of the main observations was that uh, um, the NEP probably is kind of too prescriptive in, in some sense, in certain areas at least. Um, I don't know if uh, the school cluster uh, proposal will help uh, schools that I worked with in any way. Because uh, uh, it doesn't seem to be solving any of the problems that those schools those schools face, um, mm. and I'm and another larger understanding that I see is, I don't know how uh, implementable. I mean, lofty mm. visions, uh, sure. Uh, certain proposals definitely need to be appreciated. I don't. I, I don't uh, disagree, but uh, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, it is prescriptive in in some ways, it is not at all prescriptive in other ways. So, I'm not sure how implementable it is.
1: Exactly, right? The policy has some really good and ambitious visions for the education in India. But there's this lingering question of whether it can be implemented, especially at grassroots, which is very, very significant. One of these changes is the introduction of vocational training pushing students into jobs such as plumbing, gardening, to instill respect for labors, which is, you know, in India, it's called dignity of labor, which is kind of missing. And this dignity of labor can be found, you know, in foreign countries such as Sweden and European countries and Norwegian countries. But this raises concern with the implementation as well as lack of availability of teachers in our schools and colleges, especially in government schools and colleges. So, Krishna, what do you think... The implications
2: are? Uh, In the sense, um, uh, there are two things, right? One is the implementability part, definitely, because uh, in general, we don't have, uh, uh, I don't think we have enough teachers. And even in the, I mean, if you look deeper, probably if you take like the state average, the uh, pupil-teacher ratio might be in the optimal levels. But uh, if you see uh, inside, you would notice that uh, rural schools don't have enough teachers.
1: Mm. Like
2: even in Chennai, uh, certain parts of Chennai will have excess teachers, whereas certain parts of Chennai will not, I mean, uh, certain part of the uh, the other part of the city might not have enough teachers. The second point that I wanted to make is uh, what is vocational education in a country where, um, you know, uh, dignity of labor does not exist? Mm. Yeah. Uh, And it, uh, for... uh, for kids that I have worked with in government schools are mostly, I mean, 99.9% of them come from marginalized backgrounds. Mm. Uh, they are there because they have, they can't afford any other school. Um, and uh, combine this with the uh, mm. amendment that they did to the uh, no detention policy last year uh, and the uh, kind of uh, exams, that they, the, the national exams that they are proposing for grade uh, three and five, uh, it seems like you don't want these children to uh, go on to pursue professional fields like, you know, engineering or medicine. Or uh, mm. This is kind of uh, pushing a lot of kids who um, otherwise uh, the government should be trying to um, equal opportunities, right? At that time, the government says uh, uh, there will be vocational education based on local skilling needs and all that. You, would, you will never, I mean, you will not uh, find any kid from a very uh, privileged background choosing to become a carpenter or choosing to become a, this thing. I mean, in, in general, in the world, uh, dignity of labor doesn't exist. In India, more so with caste and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the question of, again, so com, uh, this combined with the kind of, kind of uh, um, uh, restrictions that they put uh, in terms of kids pursuing higher uh, education, for example NEET uh, so the so when they bring NEET and they are saying there will be an All India exam for uh, engineering and there will be an All India exam for all courses and they say now uh, the NTA will conduct a common aptitude test uh, yeah. so combine this with the kind of push for vocational education uh, seems like a kind of twisted attempt at pushing these kids out of, uh, uh, you know, uh, their uh, uh, paths to higher education. They say, they also say they are against coaching center culture and all that. But I don't know how an all India national uh, aptitude test will be, will solve that.
1: I completely agree with you, Krishna. This policy is a little contradictory in the sense that it wants to take away from rote learning, exam-centered culture of Indian schooling that has been so inherent within us. But at the same time, it lays great emphasis on exams. Plus, no alternative step towards learning have been mentioned, right? Uh,
0: what's also raised a few questions is this sort of Proposed centralization of the policy's goals because, uh, once again, it's also like a small contradiction because uh, education falls on the concurrent list, which means while the central government can lay down a framework for what they want education to look like, it comes down to the state's own resources, state's own values, state's own history. Uh, but in the policy, you know, they talk about condensing the syllabus to a few core essentials They talk about all these sweeping changes, which um, on one hand are very great, very ambitious, but on the other, they're very uniform. So there's this lack of clarity on how the center plans on collaborating with the states to implement this or if it plans on collaborating at all, because education isn't something you can uniformly apply uh, across India so
2: the a lot uh, these are very important points because uh, i think uh, i mean education was in the state list till emergency after which it went to the concurrent list um, and like i said before states are at very different places states have very diverse kind of uh, um, administrative and other setup uh, i don't know how a prescriptive national policy is going to uh, uh, be equally helpful or equally uh, beneficial or detrimental to all states. Because one of the uh, in this context, uh, one of the uh, goals that they say they want to reach by 2035 is 50% gross enrollment ratio in uh, higher education. Tamil Nadu uh, has already achieved uh, 49% uh, gross enrollment ratio in higher education, where yeah. the Indian average is 23%, around 23, I think 23 or 26%. Uh, um, similarly so they have uh, when we talked about uh, examinations uh, they have actually uh, um, said uh, some very progressive stuff uh, when they talk about the uh, board exams they say board exams have Uh, given rise to this coaching culture and there is lower rote learning and uh, we are going to change that to a a system. I mean, we are going to lower the stakes and all that. I mean, high stakes uh, testing has been, uh, I mean, research research around from around the world say high stakes testing generally deepens the kind of uh, divides that we already have. And it sounds very uh, progressive in that part, but then immediately after they say uh, higher education uh, will be a common entrance exam uh, that will be conducted by the National Testing Agency, uh, which is again another uh, uh, right that uh, states lose uh, mm-hmm. to the center. Till uh, even now, I, I mean, except for, the, uh, uh, except for NEAT, all other admissions are decided, I mean, the mode mod is decided by the state Uh, themselves but uh, now that is another uh, right that is being uh, denied. So what could be an alternative is there are systems, there is something like something called CCE, comprehensive and continuous evaluation which is in place for lower grades. Uh, wherein they, wherein uh, not just the uh, final exam is taken into consideration, like the summative, uh, the formative assessments are taken into consideration. There are uh, there are a lot of other things that are taken into consideration when you give the kid uh, a score or a grade or whatever. In, uh, it's very in holistic, end right? of the
0: it's year. It's not just based on what you learned in a specific syllabus. It takes a lot, lot lots of factors into account. Oh.
2: definitely definitely it, it also has like the scope to include like arts and sports and all that uh, there is a basic system at place but then they don't use it uh, currently for like uh, uh, the board exam like 11 standard and 10 standard and all that they don't currently use it so an alternative could be to strengthen that to uh, how do you lower the stakes of an exam not by uh, introducing another national level exam. That's not how you reduce stakes of an exam and that's not how you reduce the influence of coaching uh, exactly. uh, coaching centers and the culture of coaching centers.
1: Just have one more question, right? How do you think the policy deals with access to education? Well, access to education is a fundamental right granted to us by the Indian constitution, right? Especially when you talk about rural India, Of course, there's a vision of higher education, like the National Aptitude Test uh, for universities that you've mentioned. But how does this policy respond to grassroots issues that begin right from homes of those people who lack access to schooling in the very first place?
2: Yeah, the existing problems, uh, they continue to exist. They don't, uh, I mean, they say, I mean, one of the things that they say is they have uh, already achieved access because from the, uh, I think in the document they mentioned uh, from the nineteen eighty six policy was i mean it was all it was mostly concentrated on uh, uh, expanding access and ex- ensuring universal access to schools and all that uh, but uh, the real state of things I'm not sure if if it's the uh, if it's to the level that they claim um, even otherwise even the what is the kind of uh, i mean what the, um, they say they have done consultations with uh, so and so many consultations. like some hundreds of meetings, all that, with uh, everyone, with every stakeholder and all that. Um, the, some of the things that they say does not seem to reflect that at all. Because, uh, again, one, uh, things are very, very diverse. Two, there are, uh, like I said, if that holistic understanding had been there, i don't think they would push something like uh, you know the school complexes or like sanskrit for example
0: I think this leads perfectly into the next question is like a common theme we've seen so far is that there's a lot of existing problems uh, that you've encountered as a person in the field that we've encountered as students that haven't been addressed by the policy, but rather Mm -hmm. the policy has addressed other issues that needed strengthening. So Mm. according to you, based on the challenges you've come across, what Mm problems does the policy actually solve? And in addition to the ones you've mentioned, what policy? What problems does the policy leave behind?
2: Um, I think certain things like, I mean, again, some of these are very, uh, if I can use, magic wandy. It says all uh, classes will have uh, 35 to 25 kids. Uh, the uh, pupil-teacher ratio will be, will be between Will be at thirty-five in general classroom or general places, and then uh, and twenty-five where, uh, there are in like backward areas and all that. Uh, I don't know how they'll change it without addressing how teacher transfers takes place, without addressing how teacher recruitment takes place. Um, I mean, the what are the I mean, again? It's uh, these are some of the good things are. I mean, I think the goals, the vision is good in some ways. Uh, mm-hmm. reduction of uh, reduction of this thing is very good i think uh, intervening at an early stage the early childhood uh, education is i think yeah. it's very scientifically sound it's very uh, aligned with research definitely uh,
0: with the integration of the anganwadi system and making sure definitely. that development yeah definitely
2: uh, so yeah. intervening there and all that are very uh, i think very uh, good things that we should definitely appreciate uh, mm-hmm. there is also uh, uh, aims to ensure there is foundational uh, i mean foundational literacy and numeracy uh, outcomes are in, i mean are ensured when they finish third standard and all that and these are these are very good aims i, I think i don't know how uh, the implementation is what kind of uh, worries me because uh, like i said with ablr with any system if you are not uh, uh, settling. If you are not sorting the issues that teachers face and that schools face, um, mm. the, it's. I don't know. I mean, the goals may, may, might be really good. I mean, we have had some of these goals even earlier. Uh, I think without mm. changing our uh, uh, ways of how we operate, then uh, these would also become uh, uh, unimplementable.
1: We also have the GDP increase, right? This is this is one mm. of the major major factors, factor mm-hmm. that 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 also uh, brings forward a positive for the policy. That right now currently we have three percent of the GDP allocated mm. to the education sector, but with mm. the policy we have six percent of the GDP uh, mm-hmm. being allocated to the education sector. So, do you yeah. think? the percentage of the GDP will also impact the implementation process.
0: Yeah, we also should look into like how that GDP will be distributed because even right now, a large chunk of the education budget goes into IITs and uh, higher education as opposed to schooling and uh, formative education. So I think it's also important to analyze how it is distributed. Uh,
2: True. Uh, Again, uh, uh, I mean, in principle, increasing the amount of spending on education, especially in public education, is something that should be welcome. Uh, But again, uh, the questions that you pose are really valid. How is it going to be distributed? Uh, How is it? uh, I think if, uh, again, I I, I think from the school lens and I think from the context that uh, I've been in, like, from the state of Tamil Nadu, the kind of systems are in place. It kind of speaks about uh, devolving power from the Department of School Education to the school clusters and all that. And I don't think school clusters are a good idea anyways. Uh, It should go into first, uh, uh, I mean, they should concentrate first on for recruiting uh, enough teachers to first ensure they have uh, 35 or 25 pupil to teacher ratio. Um uh, incentivizing teachers to go into schools that they might be uh, that they might perceive as difficult, for example in uh, in uh, rural areas and tribal areas the so teachers might not be go uh, but, uh, but there must be some kind of incentivization to do that uh, they are saying uh, uh, they are also trying to uh, work on uh, saying uh, volunteers can come and help with the literacy for uh, literacy mission and all that. That's all right and good. But uh, first, ensure all schools have enough teachers. And especially given the pandemic, there is going to be a lot of increase, I think, in the uh, enrollments in public education system, public education. Ensure that infrastructure, minimal infrastructure, at least is in place for all schools. Uh, I think it's, I mean, teachers are... Taking the uh, taking a disproportionate amount of responsibility in executing what you envision, uh, so I don't think uh, I don't see it in a very uh, critical way. And uh, I think first you need to ensure every school has enough. For, uh, if ideally, I would say give the give the funds to schools; they'll mm-hmm. they'll know what to spend that on. Another important issue is how does this. Uh, the document, which which uh, which has gone on to mention Sanskrit twenty three times, has not mentioned reservation once. Um, yeah,
0: there's actually only one mention of reservation, which says private H E I should not be mandated to adhere to reservation guidelines. Yeah, wonderful, and that's no? only. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, only where only place they mention reservation is where the they say uh, we don't need to follow reservation.
0: Exactly. Right?
2: So uh, public at least, like public schools at least, are the some of the only places where uh, even um, reservation is properly followed. Like even in higher education institutions, uh, even if there are, uh, even if there is reservation, it's not followed. Like uh, I think there were uh, reports about how the IATs and IIMs uh, reservation exists, but it does; it is never followed. There are very little number of uh, OBC. Um, OBCs, uh, 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 SAST people uh, in professor roles and in the administration and all that. Recently, uh, the um, uh, OBC reservations have not been followed uh, in uh, all India quota seats in uh, medical examination, like PG medical examinations. uh, Wherein 50% of the seats the states give to the center and OBCs are not given any reservation in it while there is uh, EWS and uh, SEST reservation that are followed.
0: Which is why, which actually drives us right into the closing question is in our work, what we do not just at Young Union Foundation, but in general is we're super passionate about what the role young people can play when it comes to policy making and politics. And you are someone who has worked at the nexus of education and policy. So what would you say that as citizens, what can we do now make sure that the impact of this policy isn't uh, disproportionate that the benefits are distributed equally and that um, like is there any scope for public opinion or public conversation around this what do you think we as normal citizens especially young citizens can do
2: the first sense we should try to I mean, some of the vision that the NEP offers is bold. I agree. Uh, some of the, it is very, I mean, you when, you when the document was released, you see a lot of uh, people, even some celebrities uh, saying this is a very bold move, this is very, it's a beautiful document and all that. I think the first thing we need to do is uh, try to learn and unlearn. Um, because I have been, I have had the opportunity, uh, I've had the privilege to kind of, uh, be in, uh, a school, in a government school and, uh, uh work with different kinds of stakeholders. I'm able to see that some of these problems are here. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the first step is to uh, unlearn the kind of, uh, things that may, that we might have learned out of, uh, um, our experiences, try to expand uh, our perspectives based on what uh, people, especially who are working in schools, who people who are working in the ground, have to offer, right? Uh, so there is a lot of merit in uh, trying to. Um, I think it's a learning is a, learning is essential to whatever we do, especially in politics, especially for uh, people who want to be active in politics. Uh, nice. So it kind of. So I think the first thing is to unlearn. Second is to I think um, in general uh, though this culture as such might be shifting might be changing a lot of uh, young people, uh, the people I grew up with are not very engaged with the uh, political system I think we have to engage with it. We have to uh, participate in it as much as we can either uh, even, I mean either through contesting elections, uh i mean you'll uh, so the parliamentarian i work with uh, is uh, ms jyotimani who represents uh, Tharoor in the lok sabha uh, she she came into politics when she was 21 she her whole journey has been i mean she was elected a ward councillor when she was 21 she has lost four big elections after that and this time she won uh, with over uh, a 4 lakh margin of votes uh, against the former deputy speaker of Lok Sabha. Uh, oh, wow.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it is incredible to hear about this. It just aligns so well with the work we do at Young India Foundation. But all that's said and done, just to like rehash what we've talked about, education isn't something that uh, can be centralized even in India like sure we can have a basic set of principles and values but uh, every state is so different in its diversity and composition but at the same time the policy does it's hopeful in the sense that our government is taking education seriously and actually wants to work towards something bigger and better than what we have so I think it's so, like with all things in politics, it's important to appreciate what the government is doing, but do so critically and with uh, with an open mind. So uh, we can't we can't even begin to thank you for all of your in- inputs. This was very insightful and uh, did so much more than just reading the policy because it is quite a long and extensive policy. And hearing your input on this from such a realistic ground level perspective really shaped how we see this and how we'll go ahead. Um, So thank you so, so, so much for joining us. We genuinely appreciate this a lot.
2: Thank you so much for asking me to, uh, I I do see, uh, I mean, I've been trying to involve myself in uh, different kinds of, uh, uh, I mean, political activities. I, I, I was part of art when I was 19. But then uh, my uh, views have <laughs> my views have evolved from then. Uh, okay. But then it's uh, uh, the, it's very very heartening to know that there is an organization that's uh, aimed at bringing a lot more people into a uh, lot more young people into politics.
0: So yeah, that was our discussion on the National Education Policy twenty twenty. We're so grateful to have had the opportunity to learn from someone as well-read and as active in the field as Krishna. We recognize that the policy in and of itself, it's super extensive, it's super detailed. And there's so much more to talk about, like how schools are gonna change with respect to how we choose our subjects, how universities are gonna change with respect to how majors and credits are structured, the way education is literally governed in the country. Uh, Which is why we want to assure you of two things. First, the Young India Foundation think tank is currently working on research projects and studies pertaining to the policy. So stay tuned to our socials for content, uh, analyzing it further. And second, this will be followed by future episodes breaking down the policy because there's so much to cover and because it's still developing. So we're very excited to talk about it uh, as it comes along. Now, before we close, I'd also like to introduce you to one of our recurring media segments where uh, we here at the podcast recommend you, our listener, any form of media, you know, shows, music, readings that we'd like you to check out. So, Sanskriti, why don't you take the lead for this? What's something that you'd like to recommend to our listeners?
1: I'd like to recommend this amazing TV show on Amazon Prime called Bandish band wherein these two incredible singers go on a self-discovery journey with one another. And I think Bandish Band-Aids is special because it brings Indian classical music to modern audience while showing respect to the Indian classical music. So I think this is a high recommendation from my side. What about you, Rishika? What's your recommendation?
0: That sounds interesting. I'm definitely going to add it to my watch list. We promise that this isn't sponsored by Amazon Prime. Personally, I'd like to recommend this article from the New York Times that uh, loosely pertains to what we talked about today. It's called, What Should the Humanities Do in a Crisis? Uh, It's pretty self-explanatory. just talks about the role uh, a humanities education would play in something like the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, So, yeah. Both of these media recommendations will be linked in the description below. Um, Thank you so much for joining us on our first episode. We're still finding our ground, so if there's any recommendations you'd like to make, if there's anything you'd like us to cover, all our contact information can be found in the episode description below. Uh, we're so grateful to have you join us and we really really hope that you stay tuned for our future episodes thank you sanskriti for joining me today Uh, take care stay safe Uh, we'll see you soon